Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a cool autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Louis Backus. Louis is the Managing Director of Pipeline Supplies Limited, a wholesale supplier of pipes and fittings based in Uxbridge. Um, Louis, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello there. Hello, it's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we do address that to begin with. Because I'm sure you'll agree, Louis, it's proven to be a significant challenge for leaders in all walks of life. Probably one of the most significant challenges of our time, in fact. But for you and your business, just how has it affected you and your operations? Um, to be honest, I think we have been one of the very lucky ones um, for the industry that we're in. Uh, we supply 90% of our customers are hospitals. So um, it's kind of been business as usual for us. Uh, there's been some major adjustments to how we've done that business right from the get-go, um, starting with splitting my team up. And uh, some of them working from home, a few of them in the office, me floating about all over the place uh, and, and yeah, just making some adjustments so we can carry on working, supplying the, the, the customers that um, we need to supply to keep the country running. So, yeah. And from adapting to this new reality, is there anything you'd say that this whole experience has taught you in your leadership role? Um, it's, it's taught me many things. It's taught me that that things never really carry on as they are in business. They change all the time in business, and then they can change the environment, and then the world can change and change the business. So basically, adaptation is just literally the key word for leadership and business, really. And what features of the lockdown period can you see being a permanent fixture in the way that we do business in this country? Because businesses have had to innovate during this time. That's one of the few positives that we've seen. We've seen an increased reliance on technology as well, for example. Do you see those things being something that is going to last from here? Yeah, I mean, uh, good or bad, uh, the the internet is just literally coming into its own with, with Amazon and, and, and online supply and um, you know, just just talking, video chat, Zoom, you know, all, all the all the technology, but also I think people, because people spent so much time away from people, families, friends, and just people in general, I think people appreciate people more now than they did before. So it should change for the better in some ways as well. Let's certainly hope so on that front. Um, If we move on now to just touch on leadership a little bit more broadly, I do always like to ask the question to guests that come on to the uh, the programme, Louis. What does that word leader actually literally mean to you? What do you feel the role of a leader actually is? Um, I I would sort of put it down to me as similar to the leader of of a wolf pack. So basically, you are there to look after your pack and to, to see that they're everybody's okay within that pack and to make sure 
that they're all happy in what they're doing. And if they're all happy in the jobs that they're doing, then the jobs get done and the business thrives and everybody's winning. That's my philosophy. So, And in terms of your personal leadership style, how would you describe that in enacting that philosophy? Um, <laughs> my, my leadership style is really just just setting a good example and just doing the best I can every day and hoping that that, you know, uh, um, portrays to, to um, my employees and um, yeah, just just basically a happy environment. So it, there's no carrot, there's no stick. It's just everybody gets on well. We're like a family, and that's that's it really. Okay, and um, if we think about sort of the role of a leader, so many people say that a leader's role is essentially to inspire and to motivate people particularly during a time of crisis such as this but when you are in the leadership role yourself and you do need a little bit of inspiration for yourself and there isn't really anybody above you to consult as such where is it that you tend to go looking for that as and when you need it um to, to be honest you watch the tv every day and you look at the job that the nhs are doing and my, my company works very closely with the NHS. So we see day-to-day issues. We see day-to-day wards. And just to see the, the country pulling together, helping people, that is enough inspiration for anybody to try go out there and just try to do a bit better. And if we think about those younger generations of aspiring leaders that may be listening to this, Based upon your experience, of course, of managing your own business and also managing through a crisis such as COVID-19, if you could give them some advice to really get them on the road to success, what advice would you give them? Never give up and keep chipping at the block because you never know when it's going to happen. Yes, exactly. I think persistence is something that's incredibly key when it comes to uh, to leadership, for sure. Um, But what we've seen during this uh, pandemic as well with regards to leadership is something um, to do with the value of hindsight, particularly from the government point of view. There's been a lot of criticism of certain mistakes, perhaps, that they've made during this period of time. But it is important also to remember that it is an unprecedented challenge and leadership nonetheless is still a process of continuous learning and improvement, isn't it? We're never, ever a finished article, even in a leadership role. Would you agree with that? I I would 100% agree with that. A a book that isn't written is going to have many spelling errors before the book's finished. Uh, And that's exactly the same for the government picking up a pandemic that's never happened in our time before. Nobody's ever going to get 100% correctly. And that's the beauty of hindsight because then you can do better the next time round. So, and you can put measures in place to, to prevent certain things happening next time round. So, you know, it, it's, uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but experience gives you the hindsight. Yes, exactly. Experience is um, incredibly um, important. Um, it, there, there are necessarily um, no better teachers than experience, even though we can have influential sort of mentor figures within our lives. Um, just touching on sort of mentors, is there anybody who you've maybe been inspired by, any leadership figures that you've worked with or just looked up to in the world of business that have maybe helped you on your own journey, Louis? Um. Not really. I think my parents have always looked up to have been uh, hardworking uh, folk, and, and um, my wife's parents 
So I think you don't need to look far from home to see inspiration of, you know, hardworking and achieving. Mm, it's something incredibly important, that, isn't it? Because it, it just goes to show that some of the most influential people behind leaders today can often be the people that are closest to us. They can be family members. They can be people who we learn from. They don't necessarily have to be people that really put themselves on pedestals, such as the prominent business leaders out there that have gone on to be successes, such as political figures. It can just be people that we encounter in our everyday lives. It, it certainly can, yeah. From from parents to uncles, aunts to teachers, university lecturers. There's been lots of people that, that have um, inspired me in in small ways along the way to achieve small goals that have eventually helped me to achieve bigger goals and uh, to to create a life within a, a business world. And. Do you have any sort of um, techniques that you've learned maybe that have improved productivity that you would recommend to other leaders based on your experience? Um, as I said right at the beginning, I think we, we were just fortunate, uh, the industry we're in, that we supply hospitals. And unlike you know people that are in the retail and, and, and hospitality industries has been affected badly, we, we're just lucky that we were in that place at that time. So... In terms of tips and techniques, you know, all all I can say is from from our point of view, we just I said to my staff right at the beginning when we didn't know what was going to happen, we're going to try and um, plough through, pay our all of our wages, and make any money at the end of it we do. If we don't, and then we'll just see what happens. And fortunately, we went we went through with so far with flying colours. So. Mm, that's certainly encouraging and one thing that the pandemic certainly has done as well is it's really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight not just because of all of the concern over our sort of health but also concern over um, our careers um, the longevity of jobs in a lot of sectors but also the social isolation element of the lockdown before office spaces and workplaces began to open up in earnest again of course we might just be going a little bit backwards with the restrictions that the prime minister announced recently um, which may last over over the year, the next six months. But just how important is mental health in leadership for you, Louis, in any sort of period, not just within a crisis, but at any time? Massively important. There's been various occasions where I've had to have conversations with with, with staff members to, just to keep them, um, uh, just to keep them, what's the word I'm looking for, to keep them happy and to, to, to keep them in the game, basically, uh, and just say, look, focus on the job. We're doing our best. Um, you know, things are going to be hard. It's going to look tough from the outside, but we just got to put a brave face on it and literally just just turn the other cheek and, and get on with it. That's literally how, how we've looked at it. Mm. And it does link in back to what we touched on um, earlier, isn't it? That leaders have really had to step up to the plate during this time and be beacons of inspiration and motivation just to keep things going. Um, and I want to talk about the future as well, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Louis. I am conscious that we are now running short of time. Um, we do know that we are going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal over the uh, the next few months until there's a vaccine or a cure for COVID-19, um, whenever that may come about, if ever. Um, we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to sort of different restrictions that may be coming and going. But over this next year, what is next for you and for Pipeline Supplies? What are you hoping to achieve and where do you see the business being this time next year? We're just hoping to, to carry on as we are. Um, you know, we've been growing steadily since 
the, the, the day we started uh, seven years ago. Um, hopefully this time next year we can, you know, um, not be any worse off than we were last year, maybe even grow a little bit. And uh, just just to keep trying to um, embrace every challenge that, that comes in front of us, whether that's, you know, another lockdown or whether that's an economic change, whether that's changes in the EU, whatever happens, we just just got to try and embrace embrace the change, really, just to adapt and to, to keep going as a business because that's the best way the businesses survive. You're right, it is going to be a changing time, absolutely. And uh, even with all of this COVID-19 situation still going on, I mean, in the background, you're absolutely right. The Brexit trade negotiations have been just rolling ahead quietly. They've been sort of rearing their head and putting themselves in the headlines a little bit with, of course, the internal market bill coming into parliamentary legislation and debates as well. So that's something that certainly is um, going to uh, be on the horizon for business as well, that it's going to have to adapt to. But of course, business has been so nimble and being able to do so during the course of this year pivoting and adapting to the changes posed by COVID-19 and I certainly wish you and your business all of the luck in the world and continuing to negotiate that and looking forward to a prosperous future. In fact Louis just given how enlightening as well it's been having you join us on the programme today I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point and have you back on the show at some point in this next year just to see how things are coming along as well. Yes um, yeah that, that would be great. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I really would. It's been fantastic to welcome you onto the Today's Show. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. Thank you so much. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and look after others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. I was speaking on today's programme to Louis Backus, Managing Director of Pipeline Supplies in Uxbridge. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be welcoming England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, onto the programme. Um, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals during his professional football career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium stadium 54 long years ago now. During this interview, Sir Jeff will be reflecting on some of the highs of his career, um, discussing how influential leadership has been during that time, as well as leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can over the last few months. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, uh, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit 
Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in in the country um, if if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... um I've often, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, as the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, 
we was at three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, well you were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football it's just that that's how it, how it happened uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying come and have a trial at this club or that club uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about as I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a world cup some world class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was very surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time for the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final 
So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, uh, it, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career and I think I, though I went into business for 20 years I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably for those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.